Welcome to the Peckway Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. At Peckway, our mission is to transform lives by connecting people with God and with each other. It's our hope that this message will give you hope and encourage you to take the next step in your journey with Christ. For more information about our services and weekly ministries, visit us at peckwaychurch.com. invite you to stand as we begin today welcoming uh, the Lord into the house as we worship him today. We thank him for his presence. He's always with us, but we want to say thank you to him today. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. Our God, he holds a victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. Shout out your praise, there's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place, and we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise, oh, 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 we shout out. Shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy. 
seat. It's so great to see you all here today. I'm glad that you're here and that you chose to spend this uh, weekend here at church with us. My name is Scott. I'm the worship pastor here at Peckway Church, and it's always an honor and a privilege uh, to be able to worship with you. Uh, In preparation for our time together today, those of you that are viewing at home, you may want to take a moment and gather a few things to uh, participate in sharing together communion. And you can use whatever you have today. Um, You might have a cracker, maybe some bread. Uh, You don't have to have juice necessarily. You can use water, just whatever it is, but have those set aside uh, to join us a little bit later as we celebrate communion together in this service. Well, here at Peckway Church, we love to connect people with God and one another, and it's our hope that you will see and experience that today uh, as we worship together. And if you're a first-time guest, we would love to connect with you. Uh, Every week, we ask everyone to fill out a a connection card, and that's a great way for us to be able to provide you with resources and to pray with you. And we know that everyone prefers a different method of communication, and so we have a few ways of filling out the card today. So you can either fill out the card, uh, the connection card that's in your bulletin here this morning, and then you can drop it in the back, uh, in the box that's at the back of the room as you exit. For those of you viewing it online, you're going to see a connect link in your chat window. But also, if you're a first-time guest, whether you're at home or here in person, you can take out your phone and you can text the word hello to 717-872-5679. And so we hope to provide you with information about our church and to give you a personal line of communication and also everything that you would need to see if Peckway is a good fit for you and your family. And by texting and uh, p- by texting that and uh, filling out that card this morning, we're able to stay in contact with you and uh, also, again, be able to provide resources that are going to help uh, be able to help you in that journey with Christ. So again, just text that word hello to 717-872-5679 so that we can say hi and uh, be able to say thank you for visiting again with us. And so also at the Welcome Center desk, if you want to stop out there, if you have any questions, uh, our volunteers would love to chat with you. And uh, also we have a free gift for you this morning. And then for those of you at home, if uh, I know you're not able to get out to that Welcome Desk, but uh, in the chat window there, just make a note, let us know, and we would be glad to answer any questions you have and also send you that free gift. Well, this morning we're kicking off a brand new series on practical life advice from the book of James. And so maybe you've asked this question before, but, you know, how can I know that I'm growing as a Christian? Well, the book of James is going to help us answer that question as we walk through this nine-week series. And we're going to see how we can have a faith that works. We're going to learn to grow as a Christian and see that the Bible, God's Word, has practical answers to many of the questions that we ask and the challenges we face.
So did you relate to any of those scenes that you may have seen in that video? You know, maybe you've had interactions this week or recently, um, maybe at a drive-thru or at work, uh, or maybe your car, when it, your car breaks down. But, you know, God tells us when our, uh, that our, when our faith is tested, that it's a good thing because it strengthens our faith and it helps us to grow as a believer. And that's why James says to consider it uh, an opportunity for great joy when our faith is tested and we face difficult situations. And so this morning we're going to respond with a song uh, that echoes that sentiment that we can have joy when we face challenges. This song says that I will praise God in my lowest valley. You know, so those lowest moments in our lives. And then when our heart is heavy, we can choose to praise him. And the reason is because God never fails. He's never late and he's working all things out for our good. So let's stand and sing as we respond to him today. I count on one thing. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the way same God who's never late is working all things out. He's working all things out. Yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. Yes, I will sing for joy when my
And you're helping me to believe You're restoring me piece by piece There's nothing too dirty that you can make worthy Wash me in mercy, I am clean. There's nothing too dirty that you can make worthy. You wash me in mercy, I Stay. 
time now where we, um, we're going to have communion together. Those of you at home, if you have those things uh, prepared, go ahead and have them beside you as we begin. And if anyone uh, coming in, if you didn't receive those elements, if you would just let the ushers know, they'd be glad to get that for you. Uh, they're at the back of the room, or if you just want to kind of raise your hand, whatever you feel comfortable with this morning. But uh, if you need those, go ahead and uh, Slip up now and go ahead and do that. And I'm going to let Matt go ahead and move that forward, and that way I can uh, move up here as well. So, um, so I want to invite everyone who's established a personal relationship with Jesus uh, to participate here this morning. And you don't have to be a member of our church uh, to receive the elements. And so this is one of two sacred actions that were established by Jesus to uh, unite his followers and not separate them. So all his followers are welcome to participate uh, for the Lord's table. So, and those of you here today, um, whether in, in person or at home, um, if, you know, maybe you're considering the Christian faith, but you haven't yet established that relationship, you know, we're glad that you're here today. And we are uh, completely respect where you are in your faith journey. And, uh, you know, we don't want you to feel any pressure today to do anything that would cause you to feel inauthentic. So, um, you know, if you receive those elements when you came in, but uh, you're not comfortable with that today, it's, there's no judgment. Uh, you don't have to do any of those things this morning. So feel no pressure to participate. Um, but we'll move forward with that in our service now this morning as we um, pre uh, prepare uh, to have the bread together. And this is what Paul writes. He says that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this to remember me. So take and eat and remember what Jesus has done for you. Paul goes on and tells us that on the same night, Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant. It represents the blood that I will shed for you. Do this to remember me. Take and drink and be grateful. So let's pray together as we uh, continue our service. Jesus, we're so grateful for the sacrifice that you made. Lord, for taking on uh, 
our sins, our, the judgment and the punishment that we deserve, uh, Lord, that you did that on the cross for us. Lord, that you willingly went, uh, that you, um, God, uh, had this plan from the very beginning of time to redeem us, to rescue us, to give us away. And so this morning, as we uh, remember how your body was broken for us, uh, God, as we've eaten the bread, uh, Lord, as we thank you uh, that, uh, God, that you chose Jesus, that you did that for us. And then as we drank the cup this morning, Lord, as I am reminded, uh, Father, that, Lord, you tell us that we are healed uh, by the brokenness and by the shedding of your blood, and so, and that we can receive eternal life. And so today, as we have done this, Lord, as we, uh, our hearts um, have been renewed and refreshed as we remember these things, God, uh, Lord, help us uh, to grow uh, deeper with you. And Lord, as we hear your word today from James, God, and uh, as we consider the trials, the tribulations, God, but as we see that in light of eternity and what you've done for us, Jesus, may we uh, worship you and, and thank you, Father, uh, for all that you've done. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Pastor Scott has said, we are kicking off a brand new series today that we're calling A Faith That Works. And really, I, I can't think of a better way to kind of kick off this series than to do what we just did, and that is to receive the Lord's Supper. Because the possibility to look at and be able to do through His Spirit what we're going to talk about, being able to do to live the kind of life that God's Spirit calls us to live, is only made possible because of the death, the resurrection, and ultimately the presence of Jesus in our lives. And so really, this is just a great way for us to begin this series by being reminded of what Jesus accomplished for us. But again, if you're not you know, familiar with the, you haven't had a chance to read in the bulletin, not familiar with the book of James, this is really a journey through a book that I would suggest to you is like really no other book in the Bible. And what I mean by that is it is one of the, probably the most helpful and practical books in the entire Bible. It's certainly in the New Testament, because here's what James does. In very blunt, I would say, kind of just direct language, he lays out for us not simply what it looks like to hear the Word of God, but ultimately he lays out for us how to live the Word of God, how to live it out, flesh it out in our lives. And so I just want to say right up front to you that it's my hope, it's my prayer, it's even my belief that we're going to find, collectively and individually, we're going to find this series very, very helpful because, again, James is an incredible, practical book. So here's what I want to say to you. If you have been someone, perhaps for years, perhaps you're just new on the journey, if you're someone saying to yourself, you know, I would give anything for a practical, hands-on guide for living the Christian life in the real world, in the world that I find myself, then I would say to you, look no farther than the book of James. Because what James does for us is he really fleshes out practical wisdom for us. In fact, some scholars refer to the book of James as the wisdom book of the New Testament. Let me give you some examples. For in the book of James, he covers topics like what we're going to see today, trials and temptations. But he also talks about things like patience, relationships, self-control, knowing and following God's will. Which the reality is, <clears throat> I would say to you, because of those practical topics, James can help us live the Christian life in a way that few other books in the Bible can help us to live. 
Now, let's just kind of jump into the message this morning by getting a little bit of background to get our bearings with the book of James. And you may be asking yourself, perhaps you already know, but you may be asking, why is it called the book of James, and more accurately, the letter of James? Well, it's not a, much of a stretch to realize it's called that because it was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. You, what do you mean, the half-brother of Jesus? Well, remember, the Scripture tells us that Mary conceived Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So Joseph was his, if you will, his adoptive father, but he wasn't Jesus' biological father. But Mary and Joseph did have children, and one of those children was, in fact, James. So James was the half-brother of Jesus. And as the Scripture tells us, and you have some references there, the Scripture tells us James is one of those select individuals who was privileged to be present when Jesus appeared after rising from the grave, in other words, at his resurrection. We also learn that not shortly after that, 40 approximately, 40, 50 days after that resurrection, 50 days to be exact, James really, the church was born, and James very quickly became the head of the church in Jerusalem. And so the Apostle Paul tells us that, in fact, he refers to James, this author of this book, this letter, as a pillar of the early church. It's also why Paul, when he first visited Jerusalem, shortly after becoming a Christian, out of deference and respect to James, he actually went and visited him. And again, at the very end of his ministry, his second visit to Jerusalem, once again, out of respect for James, Paul visited him, spent time with him. But that's not all. In addition, we're told when Peter was miraculously released from prison by the angel of the Lord, he told his friends when he went to them, and we know this story with, with Tabitha at the door, but we recognize that Peter said, make sure you tell James about this. And James, later on in Acts 15, is clearly rises up in the crucial, central thing that we have identified as the Jerusalem accounts in that time in the church when they really began to deal with what was the Gentile question, what should we require of people who are not Jews? James clearly stood out as the leader of that council. And finally, in fact, I would say to you, James was so well-known and so respected in the early church that another half-brother of Jesus, a man by the name of Jude, identified himself as simply the brother of James. But that's not all we know about this man, James. We're also told from tradition that he was known as old camel knees. Now, I don't know how many of us would be you know, like that for kind of a moniker identification, but he was called old camel knees. And the reason why was because the calluses on his knees from years of intense prayer. But that's still not old because tradition also tells us that James was martyred by being beheaded under the persecutions of Christians that was initiated by Nero. Now, I share all that for this reason. James clearly was a remarkable man. And just as remarkable is the letter he gives us in the New Testament, his contribution to the New Testament. So let's get into it. Let's look at this letter from James, and let's look at how he begins. James writes this, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. That's how he begins. And in that one verse, I would suggest to you that James tells us three things. First, he identifies himself as a servant or a slave. It's the word Greek word doulos, a servant or a slave of God and the Lord Jesus. But the second thing he tells us, and really the second and third he tells us, is first who the letter was written to, and the third thing he tells us is why. 
Because take a look, he greets them by saying to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now for you and I to appreciate that, if we do not, are not familiar with New Testament history, then let me just help us understand what James had in mind, who he was referring to when he said greetings to those, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And again, to do that, we really need to go back to the history given to us by Luke in the book of Acts. And so we're going to go there in a second, but let me just kind of net this out for you. As I said, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus was Pentecost. In other words, the birth of the church. And shortly after that, Luke does not tell us whether it's days, but no more than weeks, certainly not months, that a man, a young leader among the early church, a man by, by the name of Stephen, was martyred by being stoned to death because of his belief in Jesus. The Jewish council leaders, the Jewish community, put Stephen to death as a martyr because of his faith in Jesus. But then I want you to notice in Luke chapter 8, it's there on your outline. I want you to notice what Luke says happened next as a result of that. He said that set off a terrific persecution of the church in Jerusalem. The believers were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. In other words, they were scattered among the surrounding regions. Outside, they were forced out of their homes. And so what James is telling us when he says, to, I'm writing and greetings to the 12 tribes scattered, James is saying, I'm writing to the Jewish Christians who fled Jerusalem because of this horrific persecution that started with the death of Stephen. So in a very real sense, today we could say what the letter of James is, is really a letter to what we would call today an underground church. A church that, if you will, is existing in secret, trying to survive unjust, unmerited persecution. That is who James is writing to. And that also explains why he writes the way he does at the very beginning of this letter. You may have wondered, sometimes for years perhaps, why he starts the way he does. And take a look at it, because knowing that, I think, helps us understand why he starts the way he does. For here's what he writes. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So again, understand the context. What James is writing to and what he's recognizing is the faith of those first Christian believers those first early Jewish believers were being severely tested from persecution and being dislocated from their homes. And as a result of that, James writing as a pastor with a pastor's heart, a concern, and a leader for the congregation, he writes to them because he wants to make sure that they process not only their experiences, but their emotions, what they're feeling, and not only in what they're going through from a Christian perspective. Because I don't think it's much of a stretch of imagination for any of us to, to think that these men, these women who had been dispersed, who were being persecuted, who were living in fear, had many of the same emotions and reactions that we have when we're going through trials, when we're faced with persecution and difficulties. So I don't think it's much of a stretch of imagination for us to imagine that they were sad and they were mad that they were frightened, that they perhaps were bitter, that they were even maybe resentful toward the Jewish people who have been their neighbors, who are now persecuting them. I, I would suspect that they might have felt victimized. They might have even been playing the game like we sometimes do, the game of victim and the blame game, which is why in that soup of emotion and experiences, James offers a radical new perspective on trials, on difficulty in life. Because take a look, he writes to them and he says, consider any trial and every trial 
an opportunity not just for joy, but for great joy. Now, I want to stop there because I don't want us to hear in James' words something that he is not saying. Please do not misunderstand him. James is not saying that trials are somehow joyful things. They're not joyous experiences, nor are they something he's saying we should be happy about. Instead, what James is saying, folks, is then when we're facing a trial, we need to recognize that not only is our faith being tested, but our faith is also giving the opportunity to deepen and become something formidable, for something that truly is powerful. And so what James is trying to help his readers understand, and by inference, he's trying to help us understand, is that God permits trials to come into our lives not to break us, but to make us. And you say, Jerry, what in the world do you mean by that? That's cute, that's clever, but what do you mean that he, he allows it to make us? Well, take a look what Paul says there in verse 4. He said, so let it grow, talking about our faith. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, meaning, needing nothing. In other words, James says, trials can help us reach our spiritual potential. That's the radical perspective that is offering these, these Jewish believers, these first century Christians. And, and the principle is really this. We get it, folks. Just as steel is strengthened by the fire of a forge, James wants us to say it in the same way. Our faith could be strengthened by the fire of personal trials. Which means what James wants us to understand is that trials, in fact, can be a, and are a context for our faith to grow and to develop, for us to spiritually mature. And so here's what I want to say to you, just to make this personal and practical. Let me ask this of you. If you would tell me what it is that has tried you, what it is in life that has tested you, I will tell you what has made you who you are today, for good or for ill. Because the reality is, folks, when you and I face trials, they will either drive us to God or away from God. But James wants us to understand, folks, that if we'll choose to allow the trials in life to, to lead us to God, our faith can and will go higher and it will go deeper. James says that is an occasion for joy. That is the opportunity. That is what God is providing. And so James says we need to understand that God, in fact, is trusting us. As contrary, counterintuitive as it is, James is saying we need to understand that God is actually trusting us with trials to give us the opportunity to deepen our faith, to enlarge our character. But Jesus doesn't stop there because he recognizes, that you and I recognize, that left to ourselves, none of us can fully grasp that reality that I just shared with you. And what's more, James also recognizes that left to ourselves, none of us can ever possibly live it out fully and completely. And so he goes on and he writes this. Look at the next set of verses. He said, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, for their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Now, let's just stop there for a second, and let's just reflect, because I don't know about you folks, but I think, you know, you would agree with me that when you and I hear James's challenge to face trials with, with enduring faith so that we can become who God created us to be, to reach the maturity that God intends for us to reach, 
that our first thought, our first reaction, if we're honest, is to say to ourselves, I don't think I'm that strong. I don't think I'm that smart. I don't think I'm that disciplined. And James says to us in response, as if he's saying and speaking with us, James seems to be saying, and you're absolutely right. For that's why James goes on and tells us how to pull it off. For take a look, he says there at the very beginning, so ask your generous God. In other words, he's saying, you can't do it yourself. So turn to God, ask for help, and understand that in the asking, God will not reject you. God will not condemn you. Instead, God will actually give you and give me everything we need to be victorious over that trial. But I want you to notice something significant, because James says of all the things we could ask for God, he actually identifies one thing that ought to be at the top of the list. He's saying one thing above everything else we ought to ask God for, and here's what's at the top of the list, James says. We need to ask God for wisdom. We need to ask God for wisdom. Wisdom for what? The wisdom to make decisions, right? The wisdom to know what to do and not to do in the midst of a trial. The wisdom to know how to persevere. Because James is recognizing and communicating to his readers and to us that, folks, our wisdom is limited. Our wisdom is flawed. But God's wisdom is limitless, and God's wisdom is perfect. And so James says, above everything else, when you find yourself in the facing a trial, the first and foremost, you need to ask for God-given wisdom. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, because James says, in order for you and I to receive that God-given wisdom, there is a stipulation. There is something required of us. And that something, James points out, is settled faith. Settled faith. For Take a look at what he says next. But when you ask him, in verse 6, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. In other words, practically, James is saying to his readers and saying to us folks that we cannot come to God in some half-hearted way. Or to use his exact words, we cannot come to God with divided loyalties. In fact, I want you to underline that word divided. Because in the original Greek, the, the language that James is writing, and that word literally means two souls. Two souls. In other words, what James is saying, folks, is we can't come one second to God asking for help, and in the next second completely ignore him, and then in that process expect anything whatsoever from God. No, he says, if we are going to receive the wisdom that only God can give, the wisdom we need to know what to do and not to do in trials, to know what to do and not to do in order to persevere and survive, folks, we need to understand. We have to come to God with the Spirit says, there is nowhere else I could rather turn, and there's no one else I'd rather turn to. We recognize that God is all in all in that moment, that God is all that we need, or to put it another way. To paraphrase that, James is saying to meet trials with endurance, with God-given wisdom, so that you and I have our faith mature and developed to be made complete in our faith, we must have an authentic, no-strings-attached, committed relationship with God. Because if we don't have that kind of relationship with God, James is saying, in essence, we really haven't made God our God. We haven't fully made Him the leader of our life. And yet I want to encourage you to reflect on your own life, your own experience, and that that you've witnessed. The reality is often, folks, that's exactly where we find ourselves when we face trials and difficulties. 
We find ourselves living with divided loyalties. We find ourselves with God and not so much with God because we haven't fully settled in our hearts and our minds that He is the only one, the only one who could give us what we need in terms of wisdom and resources to not just endure the trial, but to actually overcome it. And because we find ourselves with two souls, we find ourselves as well in those moments, in those difficult times, in those trying times of life. We find ourselves, as James says, tossed back and forth here and there, emotionally, mentally, and even spiritually. Well, let's go on, because having stressed that God is actually trusting us with an opportunity to deepen our faith and develop our character, he turns back again to this idea of making sure that we maintain the perspective of joy. And he does it by talking about financial difficulties, about wealth and poverty. Take a look at what he writes. For he writes, believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls, and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all their achievements. So once again, here's what James is doing. He is highlighting, he is pointing the spotlight on our bias to not view personal trials through the lens of deepening faith and maturing character. Which is why James says that when we look at poverty, we see it as a sign of God's, a lack of God's blessing. And when we look at wealth, we see it as a sign of God's blessing. And, and because of that, we goes on and we actually think, therefore, and we feel that the life without trials is the life to be desired and the life to be pursued. But what James does in this context, what he does in this letter, he stands that on its head. He says to his readers, he says to us, folks, you couldn't be any further from the truth if you try. For he says those who face trials are actually being given the opportunity of, by God to create the one and only thing that will last all eternity, that will get out of this world, and that is faith in him. Faith in him through a deepening of our character that we become more and more like the Lord Jesus. And the reason James could say that is because he understood absolutely in a crystal clear way what God's goal is for life. And God's goal for your life and mine and for humanity as a whole is to prepare us for heaven by deepening our faith and cultivating our character. And for that reason, James says, don't envy the rich. In fact, envy the poor. He says, don't envy the person who's free of trials. He says, envy the person who faces trials and yet holds on to God in the midst of them, praying the whole time that God will develop them into the man or the woman that God created them to be. Because James says in doing that, in that process, in exercising that faith, they are developing a formidable life, a life that truly can be great. And that reality was so clear to James that he went on to write this in verse 12. He said, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptations. Afterwards, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And again, just like in that word divided, I want you to underline the word crown. Because James chose that word, and when he chose it, he was not referring to a crown that sits upon a ruler's head, an emperor, a king. No, instead he was referring and used a word that referred to a wreath, 
that was placed on the head of athletes and military victors when they were successful in battle. And the reason why is James understood clearly that this life is a battle, that this life is a contest, that this life is a test. And if we overcome, if we're victorious, if we prevail, if we pass the test, he says, you and I will receive the crown, the only crown that matters, the one that God himself gives us, the crown of eternal life. But James doesn't stop there. Because he recognizes as he writes, as he, as he gets news back about what's going on in the lives of these, these fellow Christians, these new believers, this first generation of Christ followers, he understood and recognized that persecution and dislocation and financial hardship wasn't the only trials they were facing. Then in addition to the external challenges they were facing, they were also facing internal challenges. You say, what kind of internal challenges? Battles within against sin. He understood that they were struggling like we all do to a one degree or another in life with this issue of dominion of sin, of victory over sin. And while I would say to you, when James makes clear why those two trials are extremely different, they both are overcome and made victorious in our lives the same way, by enduring faith and availing ourselves of the resources God has given us. That's why James writes this, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. And so, again, follow the logic. What James is saying here is this. Just as choosing the choice to endure is ours, just as the choice to ask for God-given wisdom is ours, just as the choice to be all in with God is ours, so too is the choice to resist temptation and sin is ours and, and ours alone, which is why he clearly states that God does not tempt us. He, he says God does not tempt us. He wants us, his readers, and us to understand that, yes, God will allow things in your life and mine that will challenge our faith. But God will never tempt us to sin. It's outside the character of God. And to make sure his point is clear, James at this point goes on and nets out for us the progression of temptation to sin. You could follow it there along. He begins, he says, temptation begins with a desire. And when that desire in your life and mine is, is entertained, when it's not, and when it goes unchecked, he says it leads to acts of sin. And when those acts of sin, in the same way, are not checked, when they're not confessed, they're not turned away from, he says, in time, it leads to spiritual death. And his point is this, that just as with trials and, and, and troubles can be overcome and endured, he's saying in the same way, sin and temptation can be endured and overcome with the help of God. Which means this, James wants us to understand, folks, that we are not powerless against sin and temptation. That's why Paul wrote this to the Christians in Rome. He says, because you belong to him, that is God, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And so James wants us to understand that just as we can we can endure and overcome troubles and trials. We can overcome and endure temptation and sin. 
we, do, we are not powerless or helpless against them. Well, that leads James to the final thing he has to say about trials, whether they're internal or external, for he writes this, So don't be misled, my brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Now, to this point in his letter, James has really told us this. He said, first of all, here's why we endure. And then really he's been talking to us about how we endure, but now he adds something else. He says, this is how we not over and only endure, but overcome if and when we depend upon God. For take a look again at what he says. He said, whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father. In other words, what, what James is saying is this, that we can not only endure, but we can also up, overcome trials and temptations because God is incredibly good to us. God is so, so good to us. For James really makes it clear. He says, for God has not only saved us, but he gives us every good and precious gift. And in saving us, he has made us his prized possession. In other words, he has made you, he has made me his cherished sons or daughters. And so James is saying, folks, you and I can endure and we can overcome, not simply because we are all in for God, but far more significantly, James says, we can endure and overcome because God is all in for us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will not abandon us. And so listen, James says, folks, whenever you face trials and temptations, you need to remember your good God. You need to remember your good God who has not only saved you, but has also given you every good and perfect gift. And in that moment, you need to understand as you face that trial, as you face that temptation, that God is now offering you and offering me an opportunity to grow and mature spiritually. But for that to happen, James says, we must first endure in faith. We must intentionally choose and ask for God-given wisdom. He says, we must remain undivided in our loyalty. We must resist temptation and sin. And over it all and through it all, we must trust in the goodness and the character of God. For James says, if we'll do those five things, God will, he promises, he will perfect our faith and our character to where one day he will give us, we will receive from him a crown of life that he gives to all those who love him. Well, that's James's first installment in, this, in his book, in his letter, folks. He comes out of the gate swinging, and next week we're going to look at what James has to say about self-control. But right now I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just want, as we begin this series, just say thank you so much for this letter from James that was inspired and directed and, and ultimately composed under the leadership of your Holy Spirit. And I just want to ask you today for myself and for all of those in the room and watching online, I pray that you'll open our hearts and minds as we work our way through this letter, through this book over the next nine weeks. Father, help us to learn every lesson you want to, want to teach us along the way. And I pray that you'll make this a rich journey and a journey at the end that we feel like was well worth the time investment. So, Father, thank you for how James starts off this letter 
<clears throat> to those early Christians, those first Christians, and ultimately to us, by sharing with us your perspective on trials and on temptation and on sin. I pray that you'll help us take it all to heart and ultimately be transformed by it. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jerry, uh, for that message this morning. And as we kick off our series in James, uh, looking to how we're going to grow. And, uh, you know, each week um, uh, that we come to this time, we have our time of giving. And so um, I have a bold question for us today. Uh, have you asked God about your giving lately? Um, that question, maybe we don't often think about it, but um, we ask God about a lot of things, but not giving. Maybe some of the things we heard about today, like wisdom. You know, we ask him for wisdom when we have to make difficult decisions or for strength when we're feeling weak or healing and comfort for those who are sick and hurting. Um, we often ask God to grow us, to make us more like Christ in every way. But do we think of, to ask God about our generosity? You know, and we, we need to ask him, you know, to, how is giving going to grow us to make us more like Christ. And so, you know, when was the last time that you honestly assessed your personal generosity? Is your generosity consistent uh, with what God invites us into in his word? Um, are you currently responding to how God wants you to challenge and grow you in your faith? Or is your generosity maybe in a, a set it and forget it mode? And so, you know, many of us, um, maybe chose our level of giving years ago, and, um, and that's where it's been since. And we seldom maybe think of it because we're, we're kind of comfortable, but God doesn't want our giving to be on autopilot. In fact, he doesn't want that to happen in any area of our faith, but he wants it to be an active part uh, and an active and living part of our faith. And so over these next several weeks, we're going to look um, at several scriptures that God might use to speak to us uh, about our generosity, because God wants to do something through us, but he also wants to do something in us. And so I hope you can uh, sense my uh, sense, sorry, I hope you can share my sense of anticipation um, for how God's going to speak to us in these weeks ahead. And so, you know, there's several ways that we can give. Uh, I think we have the slide, maybe there it is on the screen. So you can do that through the envelopes there at the back of the room. You can do that online. Um, you see the address there, and you can also do text to give. And of course, this is all in your, I believe, inside of your bulletin. If it's not, you can go to the website and find that as well. There's going to be a give link in the connect window as well. But uh, yeah, as we go through this, we're going to ask God about our giving and asking him, is it where he wants it to be? Is it something he wants to challenge us and help us grow through uh, in this season? So um, I hope that you'll go along on that journey with me as we do that. We're so grateful that you came out today and uh, spent some time this morning worshiping our, our Savior with us um, and being a part of communion as well today. And so thank you. I look forward to worshiping with you again next week, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you.